Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to another week of quarantine. Probably. <laughs> Day 275. Oh my god. So if you guys don't know by now, we sit down and we normally record four episodes in one sitting and that gets us through a few weeks. When we did our last batch, well, quarantine hadn't started yet, but the schools had shut down. And we were just discussing the possibility of a stay-at-home order, and now we're, like, legitimately in the stay-at-home order. Full-blown. And nobody's ever going to talk about anything ever again except COVID for the rest of our life, and that's how it's going to go. Absolutely. Yep. I was just thinking about that, though, how everything is going to change moving forward. Yeah. A lot of things are going to change. Our lifestyles, I think, is really, really interesting. A couple things. Mm -hmm. One is how business is going to change and mm-hmm. how is how business is done mm-hmm. whether companies are going to realize that working from home does work for them yeah and they won't need to pay for these expensive buildings i think businesses and politics we're heading into an election season and i yeah. think that this is going to be one of those things that people are going to use unfortunately oh, absolutely. and it's just absolutely I think this is all we're going to hear about when election season rolls around. Yeah. For a while. And the third thing, and we mentioned this in one of our posts, but it's scary to think that a lot of people that do go missing, they're reported missing by people that see them on a daily basis. So your coworkers, Mm -hmm. your church members, your friends that you see on, you know, your daily walks, whatever you know, moms at schools who don't see the other mom, whatever. How many people are going to go missing Mm -hmm. and no one is going to be there to report them? Yeah. I mean, we've already seen like stories coming out of like the murder suicides and stuff like that. And like the people saying, oh, I did it because of fear of COVID and blah, blah, blah. But like we did talk about this, how it's going to become one of those things where like it's not going to be like, oh, Susan didn't come into the office today, and that's really weird. She never doesn't come into the office right. without calling anybody. Like now, that's not going to be a thing. So, like, At least how for long? A while. Right. So, how long will it take before people notice that something's right awry? Because some people, I do know that they're picking up and moving back with family or moving in mm-hmm. with other friends because of financial reasons. So they might be moving out of town, or that's going to be the guys that they use. For when someone goes missing. Right. They're going to say, yeah, Susan moved out of town during the pandemic, so that's why we haven't seen her. Right. So, or just lost touch with them. That'd be interesting to see. If that becomes a thing. Right. The ripple effect of that in true crime, how that's going to... Well, and like you have, at this point, the only calls that really seem to be increasing from a police perspective is domestic violence calls. Right. So now you have people that are isolated together and they're getting on each other's nerves and that's when bad things happen also if you married someone or you're with someone that you can't be quarantined with for more than 14 days before you get at each other's throats then you're not with the right person and there are resources (laughs) to help you yeah so when we go back to normal if you see susan missing if you can't get a hold of susan and i'm just using susan as a generic name right now susan karen brenda if you see that they're missing you can't get a hold of them ask questions or even now check in on your friends if you know that they had a less than ideal lifestyle or situation at home even if you don't know that check on people like maintain contact absolutely Help a friend out, call them, check in. And now, now we step <laughs> off of our soapbox. Yes.
Today we're hitting you with the double header. We're gonna do creepy. I mean, mine's not really creepy. Fatina's is creepy, but places that have an interesting history, if Absolutely. you will. Absolutely. So I'll give you I'll I'll give you a little throwback here, and then Fatina will hit you later on with a little spook spook. So I am going to tell the story of the Oregon Insane Asylum poisoning. So. I will preface it by saying that I'm going to be referring to this as the Oregon Insane Asylum. Don't come for me. I understand that that is not politically correct. That is just what it was called back then. So that is what I am calling it now. What are they called now? Um, I think it's called the Oregon State Hospital. Okay. That would make more sense. I guess it's just not PC to call them insane asylums Yes, now. it is the Oregon State Hospital. Um, yeah, no, it's not PC to call people insane. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Or to use, I think the asylum thing has like some connotations with it. Right. Obviously. Like nobody wants to go to the asylum. Yeah. Um, but now it's the Oregon State Hospital. Okay. Political. Got it. We're cultured now. <laughs> Professional. References being used in this one are going to be the Statesman's Journal, That Oregon Life, and the Oregonian slash Oregon Life, just to give credit where credit is due. So we're going to start in 1942. As some of you may know, we were engaged in a little thing called World War II at this time. It's a little bit of a history lesson. As I like to do, as we all learned from the Ronald Reagan episode. There you go. Yeah. That was class, a great episode. <laughs> class is now in session. I love that episode. Something happened with him. I saw something the other day. Oh my gosh. Okay. So quick detour before we dive in. They were showing footage. I think he was doing the debate between him and Dukakis. So everybody knows that he was like the oldest president that was elected. His opponent called into question his age. I'll just play the clip because it's really funny. I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truett and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, that just kind of, I thought, went to speak to his sense of humor with the whole thing. Like when yeah. I said that he uh, asked the surgeon if everybody was a Republican in the room or something. Yeah. That's hilarious. He's a funny guy. Anyway, so back to where we were. <laughs> Some more history for you. We're detouring. So like I said, 1942, we're engaged in World War II, um, and food during this time is considered to be a vulnerable target for attack. Now, this is because food is something that is obviously imported harbor to harbor, so it's considered basically an easy target for poisoning or... Like, it would be really easy for them to, like, throw a bomb in there and explode it so people sure. wouldn't have, like, what they need to actually survive. Now, at this time, the Oregon State Hospital was operating, like I said, as the Oregon Insane Asylum. This story in particular takes place on November 18th, 1942, and it is, this hospital is located in Salem, Oregon. Hmm. Our capital. Our capital, even though Portland should be. At this time... 467 psychiatric patients were having dinner 
And I guess they were doing breakfast for dinner, my personal favorite. Absolutely. Um, because they were including scrambled eggs for the menu that night. Now, at this time, the hospital housed approximately 2,700 patients. Oh. The high-functioning patients were helping out in the kitchen due to staff shortages as a result of the war. You had many people that were being drafted, people that were out fighting and everything like that. Men were scarce. Women were then being called to jobs that they hadn't normally held in the past. Sure. Um, so hospital staff was down. And obviously, um, there was a special need for hospital staff, people that were medically trained, because you had a lot of, we had a lot of deaths and injuries during this war. Right. So the medical personnel was going to be a hot commodity as far as like the draft Absolutely. goes. So that meant that with the shortages, they were pulling um, patients in to help out. That's a lot of people in one building, too. 2,700. I'm fairly sure that was overhoused at that point. Absolutely. These were high-functioning patients, and one of them went by the name of George Newson. He was allowed to help out in the kitchen due to the staff shortages, and he was told by one of the cooks, whose name was Mickey McKillop, to go and get powdered milk to mix in with the eggs for dinner that night. Now, the cook gave a key to George, who was, like I said, a patient. Um, but this actually was a violation of hospital policy. You're not supposed to be giving patients keys yeah, to stuff. I imagine That's so. rule number one. Like I said, we have staff, shor- him enough and- staff shortages. They're very busy. They don't have time to go down the stairs and go get powdered milk. So he gives him the key. Now, as you go down the stairs to the basement where they actually keep the food, there are two locked doors at either end of the bottom of the stairs. One room contained dry goods like milk, flour, etc. The other room had fruit, and for some unknown reason, it also contained roach poisoning. Ooh. George goes down the stairs and goes into a room, picks up a full scoop of white powder, and pours. comes back upstairs, pours it into the eggs, mixes things up. Dinner is served, and within 15 minutes chaos breaks out patients are laying on the floor unable to stand or move oh, um some are showing early signs of paralysis setting in some are within 15 minutes mm-hmm. some are vomiting blood others are having seizures and are unable to breathe Whoa. one said that after one bite his face went numb his teeth began to hurt and Whoa. his legs became paralyzed and this particular patient never fully recovered from his symptoms Wow. And many were suffering from paralysis. And as things escalated, I mean, bodies began to hit the floor. Wow. Yeah. That was really fast. It was super fast. So a nurse named Allie Wassel was on staff that night and she took a bite and her teeth began to hurt immediately. She begins yelling at her patients to stop eating. And her ward was the only one with no deaths, although she did nearly die herself from just eating the one bite. Wow. As the night progresses, like I said, people are falling to pieces, but they're also dying, and they're dying fast. By the time the night's over, 47 patients have died as a result of whatever they have ingested. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And the tiny morgue that was at the hospital could only handle a few bodies at a time, so by the end of the night, the bodies were crammed into the chapel and lining the hallway because there were so many of them. An investigation was called in and determined that roach poisoning was found in the eggs. Now, roach poisoning contains sodium fluoride, and sodium fluoride is what you would find in toothpaste. So this is what is used to strengthen teeth, Mm. um, but anything in large doses is considered deadly. 
So just as a frame of reference, toothpaste has 0.2% of fluoride in it. A lethal dose is five grams, which is the size of an aspirin tablet. Oh, shit. So really, it takes nothing at all. It goes a long way. Yeah, it definitely goes a long way. So they, like, really, really small amount. And... That is why, like, the patients and the staff reported that their teeth hurt because the fluoride is absorbed through the teeth first. Got it. So that's the side effect that they were feeling from that is because it attacks the teeth, basically. Yeah. The patients that ended up not dying that night who started to eat were the ones that stopped very quickly after they realized that the eggs tasted bad. But many of those, even after one bite, were experiencing symptoms. And with the investigation going on, they were concerned that the hospital, whether it was due to the type of hospital it was or whatever it may be, was under a terrorist attack. Because like I said, food was a hot target during this time, during World War II. Oh, okay, okay. So authorities were investigating and they ordered all the institutions to stop using eggs. Specifically began investigating where they were getting stuff from and like was there something that was poisoned in all this product that was going to all these different hospitals and everything like that. So they stopped everything as far as like that particular product goes. So they thought targeted on the eggs. Yeah, they thought the eggs were poisoned and it it was being delivered to these different institutions. Already poisoned. Right, exactly. Once they were able to determine that it was specifically roach poisoning, the kitchen staff at that point very quickly pieced together what had gone Mm. wrong because they know what's going down in that cellar. Right. When it came out that it was specifically roach poisoning, the cook took George and went went down to the bottom of the stairs and asked George which door he went into. And at that point, George said... I went in, like went into this door. It was the room with the fruit that had the roach poisoning in it. So they figured out like immediately what had happened that he had basically picked the wrong door and picked up the right. wrong powder, and that's how it ended up in the eggs. Oh man! So it wasn't malicious. It was an error. It was entirely an error. So the cook and the patient actually stayed quiet for a while out of fear because they. I mean, ultimately are responsible for 47 people dying. So they kind of sit on this information for a while. And finally, the cook confesses to it and takes full responsibility. Once, like, it becomes a whole terrorism thing. He's like, okay, you know, I kind of messed up and comes forward. And to his credit, he does take the responsibility instead of, like, putting it on the patient, which would have been the easy out. You have somebody who's supposedly mentally ill. You could have said that he took the keys, he went down there, something like that. But right. the kid comes forward and is like, no, this is what I did. I didn't follow policy, and this was the result of it. So the cook was arrested, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but the jury refused to indict the cooks involved under the pretense that it was an honest mistake and not a mistake of the cooks. Right. Like, they didn't go and get the poisoning. He broke protocol. Or, yeah, he broke sure. protocol, but didn't commit a crime. And so George who obviously was the patient, was not indicted, but then he began being treated poorly by the other patients as they felt like he was the one that was responsible for a bunch of them dying. And to that extent, a lot of them having ongoing symptoms or like paralysis that never cured itself or things like that. George had actually come to the hospital voluntarily to treat epilepsy. At the time, epilepsy was treated as a mental illness, not realizing it was a neurological issue. So he had come there to be treated and then was involuntarily committed and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Oh. His family said there was no evidence of mental illness and he was really being held there against his will with a diagnosis that didn't fit his symptoms. So 
he was there for like only a matter of months before all of this happened and and really wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. Hmm. So all of these bad things happened to this poor guy that wasn't even supposed to be there. And then he began being treated by like shit by the other patients. Oh, that's awful. All in all, like I said, 47 people died, but 13 of the victims who died were never claimed. Oh, right. The hospital has obviously had a reputation over some time because it was an insane asylum previously. You did have a lot of bodies that were never claimed from various instances, not just this. And then it kind of fell into disarray over the years and it wasn't really being maintained. So at one point the hospital was shut down and it was used as a filming location for the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Hmm. which is a great book. I highly recommend the book. The movie's okay, but the book's fantastic. (laughs) And then other parts of the hospital actually began to be restored and they're actually being used today. So there is some parts of it that are fully functioning, other parts of it that are sectioned off and you're not actually allowed into it. It's still being used to treat psychiatric patients. So it is still something for people that exhibit mental illness or things to that extent. It's not like a medical, a standard like a standard hospital. Got right, it. exactly. Because of its history and because of the background and because of all these bodies that were never claimed, it's kind of developed this reputation. So at one point there were stories that had come out that children had been abandoned there. They didn't have a place at the time in Oregon for kids with special needs. And some of these kids with special needs were just troubled youth. And so they were being abandoned at this hospital for the mentally ill because they were basically like, here, that's society's problem anyway. Like, that's where we, that's where we drop, we drop the problem people that we don't know what to deal with. So let's just drop the problem kids that we don't know what to deal with there too. That's so sad. So a lot of kids were actually being dumped there. Girls who were victims of sexual abuse were also left there that were, were acting up or just showing signs of being troubled and nobody really knew how to help them. And they would reportedly pull their mattresses out in the hallways to sleep where the staff could keep an eye on them because that's where they felt safer. And eventually they ended up having like this whole children's ward and that ward didn't close until 2005. Wow. That's recent. Right. And there are stories of like the hallway haunting type things of children in the hallway or you can hear the sounds of kids laughing or things like that. And so that area is now completely abandoned and has not been part of the restorations. As far as like rooms that haven't been restored, there's also a room of forgotten souls. And including the 13 victims who died that day that were never claimed, it holds 3,600 neglected urns that were remains of former patients. I'm sorry, how many? 3,600. 3,600. Holy shit. The Oregonian actually covered this room. They won a Pulitzer Prize for their editorial editorial article about Ava York, or Eva, depending on how you want to pronounce it. We'll call her Eva, who died in a bathtub at the hospital in 1896, so a long, long, long time ago. Um, her body wasn't claimed. She was buried in the cemetery at the asylum. 18 years later, she was exhumed and cremated because they were planning on building out on that area. So they exhumed sure. their bodies out of the cemetery, cremated them, put the bodies into an urn or their ashes into urns. And then they put those urns into a cremains room 
And that is where it remained up until the Oregonian did this article about all of these urns that were being basically stored on shelves in this room. And it was called the Room of Forgotten Souls. It's just patient after patient after patient that was never claimed. And Eva York was actually a 36-year-old woman who suffered again from epilepsy. She was institutionalized for five years from her epilepsy before yeah. she died. And she died because she had a seizure in the bathtub and was unattended oh, and drowned. Shit. So, I mean, again, it's somebody that was had a, something that is relatively treatable now. Yeah, absolutely treatable. Forcibly institutionalized and then died because she wasn't in the proper care right. and getting the proper treatment that she needed. She was being treated for a mental illness and not a medical condition. Correct. Yeah, that's sad. Her brother was actually notified of her death, but he still didn't claim her. No. Yeah. So the hospital took responsibility for the body. She was buried, but then the hospital decided, like I said, that they wanted to use the land. That's where like the room of forgotten souls come into play because they had to have somewhere to store all of these bodies and they weren't burying in the cemetery anymore. Right. So they basically like they cremated all these people and then just left them on shelves. And her, I mean, she died in 1896. You have to think this is like, this is literally centuries. At least one. Worth of people at this point right. that have just accumulated over the years and the decades to like line these shelves that, that nobody's unclaimed. ever claimed. That yeah. Is so sad. So this is part of like why they I think goes to why people think that the hospital is haunted, certain parts of the hospital is Absolutely. haunted. And I'd love the, to visit. I know, me too. Do the urns at least have names on them? Or, mm -hmm. okay. Which is how they knew about Eva York is because hers uh, is labeled with her name. Okay. To this day, the tub that Eva died in still remains at the hospital. Oh, yeah, bet your ass that place is haunted. Creepy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you have everything that goes with running a quote-unquote asylum. Again, I know it's not politically correct, but you run an asylum. Sure. So you have... Patients that are mentally ill, potentially some of them, I would guess some of them criminally insane over right. the years. But then you also have all these people that aren't actually mentally ill being that are being held, not even housed with them, held there. That's true. Forcibly held there and probably not receiving great care. You have overcrowding. You have, you know, poor living conditions. Like that kind of stuff always ends up happening. Then you have a bunch of kids running around, some of them that have been abused, like some of them that have been sexually abused. Like that's a recipe for disaster. And can you imagine being someone there and knowing that there's this cremains room? That's sad. Mm -hmm. Is there any reports of children, ghosts running around? Yes. Ooh. I know there's some back and forth about it, but I have a feeling that you have more specific stories about children ghosts that I'm going to not want to hear, <laughs> but you're going to tell me anyway. Yep. <laughs> okay. Like I said, this is a double header. So now we're going over to you. <laughs> Thank you, Mackenzie. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> when you did the Guatemalan one, I got a lot of like texts from people that said that they really liked the ghost stories and everything like that and wanted us to do more. So I'm glad that you're doing more. Perfect. Yeah, it, it's a thing. People like it, so. I like it. Yeah. And there's just that element of the unknown and the spooky and haunted, and so I like it. So today I will be telling you about Maple Hill Park, 
in Huntsville, Alabama. So I don't think... Roll Tide. Yeah, Roll Tide. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't really a case, but it's a very haunted place. And it's about Alabama's oldest and largest cemetery. Also, (laughs) I've always had a problem with saying the word cemetery. Because I always say cemetery. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so if I slip up, sorry, not sorry, I speak another language. So I get tripped up sometimes. <laughs> How is it said in Spanish? Cementerio. So That's there is why. Mm-hmm. Okay, got yep. it. That makes sense now. All right. Is the story of Mary Chambers Bibb. She was 19 years old when she passed away. She passed away very young. She was a well-to-do woman in her community. She was supposed to get married at around the age of 18. And she had all the plans ready for the wedding. And part of her beauty regimen was that she drank Epsom salt. Ooh. Because that helped with clearing the toxins in the body. And that eventually would make people look paler, which was a point of status, I guess. The paler you look, the better. What was the time period on this? Uh, This was about 1700s. Ah, yes. That's probably very racially driven. Yes. Yeah. So at this point, she drank Epsom salt on the regular and... Just take a bath in it. (laughs) Don't snort it either, though. No, or eat it. (laughs) She was given her what she thought was her normal glass of water with Epsom salt diluted into it. And she drank it and she began feeling ill. When the house doctor showed up, he realized that one of her servants, who was illiterate, accidentally put arsenic in her water instead of Epsom salt. This did not immediately kill her, but made her ill and made her terminally ill because it affected her organs and whatnot. Right. So they sped up the wedding and they had it within the next week or so because her fiancé loved her so much he wanted to marry her no matter what. He at least wanted to be married to her. So they got married and within three months Mary passed away. Okay. Now, how the cemetery ties in is that because the Bibbs were a well-off family and because she was a woman of status, Mr. Bibb built her the very first mausoleum at the cemetery. The mausoleum is really big. It stands out. It's this huge structure in the middle of the cemetery, and it's so big that... It's just for one person, and there's room enough for someone to be sitting inside of it. And legend goes that there was a rocking chair put inside the mausoleum because that was Mary's favorite spot. She was entombed in the mausoleum sitting in her rocking chair. Ooh. So legend says that if you are to knock on the mausoleum and ask Mary what are you doing you'll hear whispers saying nothing nothing and also people report that if they go there at dark 
they hear the rocking chair from inside the mausoleum. No, 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 no. No, don't sign me up for that. Now, the mausoleum was put in this land where people were buried before it was even officially a cemetery. The cemetery, the Maple Hill Cemetery, was founded in 1822. It is believed that before it was officially founded, the land had already been used for burials, which we know it had. And the oldest intact grave marker is that of an infant named Mary Frances Atwood, who was buried there in 1820. In the 1960s, the area of Huntsville, Alabama, was riddled with a ton of unsolved kidnappings. The town was terrorized by an unknown child abductor. The kids abducted were Emma, Megan, Kayla, Corden, and Madison. I don't have any last names. Sometime after these kids had gone missing and no one had any answers, someone was walking through the park and found a small skull and upon further investigation, there were several skeletons found along with small corpses of more recently deceased victims. The perpetrator of these murders, kidnappings, was never found, was never brought to justice. But as soon as the discoveries of the bodies were made, the disappearances of the children stopped. It was determined that the children were not simply kidnapped, killed, and their bodies disposed. The remains of the kids showed that they were held for lengthy periods of time, they were not fed well, and on the recent victims, there was evidence that they had recently healed wounds. So, it wasn't a situation where the kids were just being kidnapped next day, disposed of. They were kidnapped and held hostage for however long. Oh. Yeah. I don't like it. Since many and most of the remains were found of those local children, the majority of them were buried at the cemetery of Maple Hill. In 1985, a playground was built in this park where the bodies had been found. And this is in the middle of the cemetery. It has a simple playground with equipment like swings and a jungle gym. It is set in a low spot of the graveyard and surrounded by limestone cliffs. It used to be a limestone quarry, so there is three walls surrounding almost like a cove mm -hmm. where this jungle gym is, making it even more sinister. And for those that are claustrophobic, not a really cool place to go. Got it. The small playground is in the center of the is the center of all the paranormal activity at the cemetery. A lot of paranormal investigators say that it is a regular hotspot for deceased children enjoying the playground beginning at sundown. Some of the activity that is reported at this playground is that the swings swing back and forth, side to side, all by themselves, and voices of children singing, playing, and also dust trails are seen as if kids are running through the dirt, and they also hear calling out from the children, like, come here and play. In 2007, the city of Huntsville was planning on some renovations, which involved removing some of the playground and just to make more room up for the cemetery, just mm -hmm. people keep dying. <laughs> the residents of Huntsville 
completely opposed this decision and this renovation, and because of this, not only did the city not remove the playground, but they upgraded the existing equipment. This is now known as the Dead Children's Playground. Nope. Nope. I'm all the way out. I'm going home. Goodbye. <laughs> I wonder if any... Do any live children play on the playground? So, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Kids go there more for the morbid curiosity. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Teenagers. Uh, teenagers. But it's not like parents are taking their kids to go play there. No. Uh, okay. And there's a ton, ton of videos of people going out there with EVPs, going out there with video equipment, and just people doing, I think, what's called the 3 a.m. challenge. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep, I have heard of this. Going into the cemetery, and there is a lot of video of swings completely moving by themselves. There's a picture out there that shows what looks like a pair of glowing eyes. It's at, it's a nighttime picture, mm -hmm. but it's eerie just because again, it's in a cove. So it's not like it could be something reflecting through woods or anything. There's a wall. Yeah. There's a wall. So very creepy story of possible kids playing in the afterlife. Mm. If you guys don't know about 3AM challenges or are into that kind of thing, a YouTuber, uh, Sam and Colby, and also, like, of Sam and Colby, Sam Goldbach, last name G-O-L-D-B-A-C-H, he does a YouTube channel that does a bunch of 3AM challenges, and then the two oh, of them God. do paranormal stuff together, so, like, go check out Sam and Colby or Sam Goldbach's channel, and you can watch all about it. He does a ton of 3AM challenges. Awesome. They all think that they're haunted because of all of it, so... I mean, don't do it <laughs> don't do it let the youtubers do it yeah. and just give them views <laughs> yeah let them monetize on it uh don't trespass but um if you do record it and send it to us okay bye <laughs> so. so if you hear creaking it's not the first person's rocking chair rocking it's me adjusting <laughs> in my chair so spoiler it's not mary bibbs rocking chair yeah, we didn't animate our podcast or have anybody like try and speak to you guys we're it's not just... doing this from maple hill i'm just Cemetery. very fidgety <laughs> we've been at this for a few hours now we would love to hear any spooky, creepy cemetery stories that you have. If you ventured out to do the 3 a.m. challenges, please let us know what you saw, felt, heard. We'd love to hear it. Ghost children. Anything. Ghost adults. <laughs> Ghosts. Ghost grandmas or grandpas. Ghost dogs and cats. Yeah, send us your ghost stories in general, and you can do that, segue, by... <laughs> emailing us at a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com and you can follow us on instagram and also leave your stories on there in the comments if you'd like and that's at a stranger danger podcast you can pop over to facebook and follow stranger danger colon a true crime podcast and you can join the group we encourage you to join the group it's called stranger danger colon murder lovers where you will find extras that are not posted on other platforms. Also, that platform is for you guys. So you, like, post things in there. If you want to share something, by all means, take over. Yeah. If you want to start a discussion, if Do you it. want to 
look into the Lori Vallow case that I really, really want to Good have God, resolved. Me too. Come <laughs> Let's on. talk about it. <laughs> Where are your kids, Lori? Seriously, other than COVID this year, that is the next question. That is my That's biggest what question. I want. Where, Where are, are the your kids? freaking kids? Absolutely. She's not talking. And then also confirmed she is not going to be part of the early released jailed people Good. right now. So she is um, not, her bail is standing. No one's posting her bill. There's no bail bondsman that wants to foot that bill. No. Which uh, which is hilarious. So awesome that yeah. they are all standing by it. They're like, no, I don't want my name anywhere associated with that. I honestly think they're in that place in Yellowstone that too. falls under no jurisdiction. Yeah. There's that little corner of it. So one day I will dive so deep into that for you guys. And I am will. looking forward to it. We will post about it on all those platforms as well as Twitter, which is at SD True Crime Pod. That is correct. That is, my top three questions for 2020 are when is COVID going to end? What happened to Lori's kids? And what happened to Carol Baskin's husband? To Don. <laughs> That's it. If you know the answer to these, any of these three questions, let us know. Okay, bye. Hit us on a platform. <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>